ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Golden Point Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Foster, and with me as always is the one and only Mr. Brad Winter. All right, folks, on today's episode, Brad and I are joined by a guy who is very familiar with baseball, that's for sure. And throughout this episode, well, you'll learn why. Without further ado, let me introduce to you Mr. Bruce Markison. Bruce, uh, first and foremost, how are you doing today? Good, Robert. Thanks for having me on. Glad hey, to talk no, problem. To no problem at all. Now, when we do interviews, of course, it's always a sports background, but we always like to get to know our, our guests as well. So I, I guess first and foremost, um, you know, just kind of tell us about yourself a little bit. Sure. Well, I um, was born in um, Bronxville, New York, which is right next to Yonkers. Not a lot of people outside of the state of New York have heard of Bronxville. So uh, I sometimes tell them that Yonkers is where I was was born because that's a little more of a recognizable name. But we were right on the border of those two towns. Uh, so I grew up in the suburb of New York City. Uh, big baseball fan, obviously. Uh, my father was a Mets fan. I rebelled a bit, became a Yankee fan. Uh, went to school in uh, Westchester County initially, then went to high school at Fordham Prep in the Bronx, uh, then went upstate for college. And I've actually been upstate ever since. I graduated back in the late 80s, and I've been working, well, first in radio for a number of years. I did a sports talk show, so a little similar to what you guys are doing. Um, sometimes that show was pretty long though sometimes we had five hour shows some nights we um, did a lead into a, a live broadcast of a game so on a night like that we might only be on the air for 45 minutes or 30 minutes but on uh, nights when we didn't have a live broadcast we had basically a five hour program that we had to fill the air and uh, that was uh, quite a challenge but it uh, taught me how to uh, talk in a sense uh, to carry on long conversations. Uh, some nights we didn't get a lot of calls. Other nights we did. It was always hard to tell. Uh, and I did radio for a number of years. I actually did that up until 1995. Uh, and then to be honest, I got a bit burned out by radio. The hours were difficult. Uh, I was working kind of a, a later shift. Uh, I'd go in the afternoon. I'd work till 11 at night. And to be honest, that wore on me after a while. And I decided maybe radio is not uh, what I want to do long term. And I had an opportunity to join the staff of the Hall of Fame back in 1995. And I've been there more or less ever since. I did leave for a few years. I uh, worked at some museums here in Cooperstown, New York, in upstate New York, and then returned to the Hall of Fame back in 2013. So I've been back there continuously for the last seven years now. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, you know, I actually, um, I done some, I, in college, I done sports information with a, he was a huge Yankees fan and uh, he is, he's actually in radio and everything too. His name's Diamond Dave McCulley. I'm sure you don't know who he is, but, uh, but yeah, he's a huge Yankees fan. He's into radio as well. So been doing it for, oh man, many, many years. Yeah. Um, so what, I guess, what made you fall in love with baseball? Well, I think it started with my father. He, he as I said, was a huge fan. Uh, loved the game in general, but in particular was a fan of the New York Mets. 
he didn't force me to become a baseball fan, but he was an early influence. I remember getting baseball cards for the first time when I was seven years old, 1972. And baseball cards became a real big thing with me. And that just kind of fed my fervor to be more of a baseball fan. And I've followed the game ever since. Uh, every year, my father would buy me at least one baseball book for Christmas, sometimes more than one. He wanted me to learn about the history of the game once it was obvious that I was interested. And so, yeah, not only did I follow contemporary baseball, the Mets and the Yankees being the main teams in our market, but I also got into the history of the game because of the books my father uh, would buy for me. So I put together a fairly extensive collection of baseball books, most of them about uh, one historical aspect or another uh, tied into baseball. And um, I've been a fan, you know, really ever since 1972, at the very least. My family tells me, though, when I was all of three years old, and I obviously have no memory of this, when I was all of three, 1968, it was Mickey Mantle's last year with the Yankees. And apparently, whenever Mantle came to the plate, and I was watching games at that age, again, I have no memory of this, but they all tell me this happened. When Mantle stepped up to the plate, they announced his name. I just freaked out. I started jumping up and down, went crazy. So I guess I've been a baseball fan since the age of three, if you want to go back even further than 1972. Hey, that's, uh, well, that's not too, too long ago, right? I mean, we would like to think that, I assume. Um, well, okay, so you probably, you probably had plenty of uh, favorite players, but, you know, could you name a couple that you, maybe a favorite player that you had uh, growing up? And then if you have a favorite player now as well. Well, in terms of back then, uh, really, I grew up with three favorite players. Two of them were with the Yankees. One of them was Thurman Munson, a great catcher. Of course, he ended up dying tragically August 2nd, 1979, a day that I'll never forget. I remember hearing the news. Um, we were actually, I was watching television while having dinner. That was a bad habit I had back in the 70s. I remember hearing the news of his death, but uh, he was really the leader of the Yankees of, those, uh, of that era big part of their championship teams in 1977 and 78. Uh, so he was a big, big part of my early fandom. And the other Yankee I really liked a lot was Bobby Mercer, uh, who was a terrific outfielder. Uh, he was, like Munson, extremely popular with the fans. And then all of a sudden, uh, after the 1974 season, the Yankees traded him to the Giants for Bobby Bonds. Bobby Bonds was probably a better player in some ways, but I was heartbroken. A lot of Yankee fans were heartbroken because of Mercer's popularity uh, with the franchise, with the fan base. Um, then, of course, he ended up coming back to the Yankees later on. As it turned out, he actually rejoined the Yankees in 1979, which was the tragic year in which Munson was killed. And I remember after Munson was killed. The Yankees went to the funeral service that was held for him. And Mercer was one of the people that delivered the eulogy. And there's no tape of it. Obviously, wasn't there. But people who were there saw it say it was just very powerful, the words that he had to say about Munson, because the two were very close. They were really best of friends on those Yankee teams. Uh, and then the third player that I liked, a player who was out of the market of New York, he was he was certainly not a hometown player for me, uh, but that would be Roberto Clemente, the Pittsburgh Pirates, who, of course, is a Hall of Famer. And like Munson, 
died very tragically in a plane crash, um, New Year's Eve, 1972. And one of the main reasons I actually liked Clemente was because of my own heritage. Uh, a lot of people, they'll, uh, they'll look at me, they'll see my last name, not realizing that I actually come from Puerto Rican heritage on my mother's side. My mother was born in Santorce, Puerto Rico, which I later found out was the first professional team Clemente had ever played for in the Winter League. Um, but I found out, at a, I obviously knew at a young age that I had this Puerto Rican heritage and Clemente was a phenomenal player. When I discovered he was from Puerto Rico, it really made sense that he would become my most favorite player. Um, so, you know, sadly, two of my favorite players growing up in the 1970s were players that um, you know, ended up dying very young, uh, but not before they registered a huge impact on the game. Both were really kind of heroic figures in different ways and um, still players that you know, are influential for me. I, you know, still think about them, read about them, do research into them. So that's what I grew up with in terms of my three favorite ball players. Um, in terms of a player today, I don't know that I necessarily have a favorite player. I'm still a Yankee fan all these years later. Working for the Hall of Fame, though, I have to try to put that aside and be objective. When I'm doing my job, I can't just talk about the Yankees. I have to talk about other teams, other players from those teams. Um, I, I don't know if I necessarily have a favorite player today. There are there are guys that I like. Um, you know, you look at the Yankees of today, and they have some very uh, good, likable players. Brett Gardner has been there a lot. I like the way that he plays, very scrappy, very tough player. Uh, he's also, I believe, the, the longest uh, Yankee in terms of service to the organization. He's been with them for uh, over well over 10 years now. Um, so I don't really have necessarily a, a, a one player that I really follow and and am really um, you know that enamored with today. I, I guess I take more of a, a team-oriented uh, approach. Um, I think when you're a kid, when you're young, Maybe you have more of a tendency to have a favorite player. Um, and for me, as I've, I've grown older, I've, I guess I've become less interested in the individual player and more interested in team results. Okay. So I, I could see that. I, I'm younger now. I guess when I started watching baseball, uh, I'm a big Cardinals fan. Uh, mostly probably due to the area, I guess. But anyways, um, you know, I'm a big Mark McGuire fan, kind of Mark McGuire, Chipper Jones, I, I guess, you know, yeah, he's a brave, but yeah, I mean, you know, I watched him a lot, and so I just kind of uh, enjoy watching him. Yadier Molina's probably up there for me now, uh, just, you know, the fact that he's been a Cardinal for so long, um, yeah. I just respect the loyalty uh, so much. But, um, yeah, what? so working for the Baseball Hall of Fame, what is, what's your, like, I guess, favorite part about working for the for the Hall of Fame? you know or just favorite thing that you that you like doing for them well in terms of my job day to day the thing I think I like the most is getting to work with kids I work in the education department and I'm essentially a teacher I do a video conference or virtual field trips so I'm actually used to using the zoom technology this is not a new thing for me I know for a lot of people it is new because of the virus and the outbreak and forcing so many people now to work from home and to have meetings through Zoom uh, or other platforms. Uh, but I like working with kids. I do video conference programs with students, basically schools that, 
that it's either too expensive for them to make a trip to Cooperstown or they're just too far away. Uh, we've even done programs with schools in Canada, Mexico, uh, throughout the United States. And I like being able to teach about baseball. We don't just teach baseball though for the sake of baseball. We kind of use baseball to teach the kinds of things that are taught in the regular curriculum. So for example, um, we will tackle social history or uh, social studies, American history, uh, through civil rights, the story of Jack Robinson. Uh, we can teach math by instructing kids how to calculate batting average, slugging percentage. So we're able to use baseball to teach the kind of things that are taught on a day-to-day -day basis in school. And for me, that's kind of a cool thing to be able to do. So I, I really enjoy that. Um, the other thing I really enjoy about the job, and it's not something that's part of the everyday tasks that I have, but it's kind of a fringe benefit of working at the Hall of Fame. It's, it's fun to be able to meet uh, retired players that come through the museum when we are open. Uh, it's fun to meet the Hall of Famers. They come here for Hall of Fame weekend. Some of the Hall of Famers will come here at other times of the year as well. I occasionally get to meet actors and other celebrities, um, some big names, some maybe not as well known, but um, it, it's, for me, it's, it's a lot of fun to be able to uh, meet people uh, from, you know, the two areas that I'm really most interested in, um, baseball and, and movies. Uh, so it's, it, it's kind of a cool thing when you get to meet someone. And to be honest, most of the time when, um, when I meet somebody, a, a ball player, um, it's not disappointing. You know, most of the time they're agreeable, good-natured people, and uh, it's only on those rare occasions where you might meet somebody that um, is not the way in person that you'd like them to be. You find out that uh, maybe their personality is a little bit different than you thought. But most of the time, um, good people that you get to meet, interesting people. Um, and a lot of times they're as interested in what I do as I'm interested in what they do. Very nice. Yeah, it, it seems like a really fun job to me. I mean, that, that seems like really fun. What? Okay, I guess it, this is a little not really on the thing, not really on our plans or whatnot. If a school uh, were to want to connect with you through Zoom or something like that, where would they go to do that? Well, the best thing to do is actually to go to our website, which is baseballhall.org. So www.baseballhall.org. And at the top of the page, there's a tab for the education department. And that'll actually show the offerings that we have, both for on-site groups that come to Cooperstown and also for, for schools that are interested in doing video conference, virtual um, field trips with us. Um, we offer 16 different virtual field trips, everything from American history to math to science. We even do a program, Pop Culture Through Baseball Cards, which is particularly a lot of fun to do. Um, the schools um, you know, they can look at the offerings that we have. The teacher can then fill out a form, which is sent to us. We do charge a fee for this, but it's certainly a lot cheaper to do that than it would be to do a school trip for most schools, given the expenses of a bus and a bus driver and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's a relatively easy process. Teachers just go to our website, go to the education tab, uh, fill out the form, and then we try to get back to them within a day or two and try to work out a, a time, mutual time, that's good for both uh, myself and for the school as well. 
say if I was still a student and my teacher were to uh, were to schedule that, I'd be I'd be very pumped and excited to, uh, for that day uh, and for that time. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about baseball and what's kind of happening right now. Um, you know, obviously the season's not happening, but, you know, there is seems to be some talk about it possibly happening. What do you think of uh, the what do you think about the potential of opening day being uh, July 4th? People have asked me about this ever since the major league season was suspended. And my response, more of a hunch than any inside information, nobody within the game has, you know, told me there's definitely going to be a season or there's definitely not going to be a season. But just looking at it based on a hunch, based on maybe common sense, reading between the lines, I do think we're going to have a season. And I think it's probably going to start in early July. Now they've said that they're going to need three weeks of spring training. So if they're going to start in early July, that means by second week, middle of June at the latest, they're going to have to start spring training. That's only about five, six weeks away. So if there's going to be a season, something's going to have to break in terms of a decision and a formal plan within the next five, six weeks. Uh, but I do think it's going to happen. I think you'll see players play, at least initially, in ballparks that are without fans. Um, maybe later in the season, they'll start allowing fans in. Maybe they'll play the entire season with no fans. Uh, I do think, though, that um, as long as they can cross that roadblock, as long as team owners are willing to take the hit financially that comes with having no fans, and as long as most of the players are comfortable, you know, participating in a season, then I think, uh, I think it, it makes too much sense not to happen. Um, it, it would be very bad, obviously, for baseball not to have a season. And from both the standpoint of the players, players do not have a long shelf life. It's said that your peak is when you're 27, 28 years of age, when you're 30 and over your skills generally are on the decline. So to lose an entire season is huge, no matter what the reason would be. So it's not good for the players to lose that season. Um, then from the owner's standpoint, you know, not having a season is obviously not good in terms of the bottom line. Um, and certainly the fans don't want to go an entire spring, summer, and fall without baseball. There is a desire on the part of a lot of people, including myself, to have some sort of normalcy. Uh, you know, this, this canceling of everything, postponing everything is, uh, I've grown weary of it. I know a lot of other people have grown weary of it. A lot of things are not gonna be normal this year, but um, it would be nice if we could at least have some semblance of a baseball season. And I just think it makes too much sense not to happen. So I think it will probably start around July 1st, 4th of July, and that will enable them to play about 100 games and then have a postseason. And if you can have a 100-game season and then a postseason, I think that's enough. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. I would, uh, I'd like to at least have something, you know, uh, even if it was – even if we didn't even get 100 games of baseball, you know, 50 games of baseball would be nice at this point. Um, but, you know – you're saying uh, take a, you know, if you take a whole season off, and I just want to ask you about the his, the Houston Astros situation. Do you think that because of COVID nineteen, 
um, whenever the season starts, if of course it starts, are people kind of going to forget about that in your opinion? Or, uh, and also just your thoughts on the, on the situation as a whole too. I think right now people have pretty much forgotten about it. If and when the season does start, I'm sure that some of the fans, well, if, if they do allow the fans into the ballpark, that probably won't happen initially. But whenever they do allow the fans to start going to the games, I'm sure those fans will remind the Astros of what they did and will give them a bit of a hard time. But there's no question that given what's happened with this coronavirus, this unprecedented delay to the start of the season, we've never had anything like this other than for strikes and lockouts in the past. So this is really, for this reason, it's unprecedented. Uh, we've never had a health situation um, delay a season in such a way, such a lengthy way. And I do think people will be so appreciative of there being any kind of baseball that the Astro scandal will get pushed to the side. Uh, it's already somewhat forgotten. It'll come back a little bit if there's a season, but um, I think people will be dwelling on the positive, which is the fact that there's baseball at all. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I agree with you there. What What about the realignment of the divisions? Do you think that, you know, do you think it could stick if they try to do that? I think it could. You know, they've talked about realigning into three different leagues, and it would be strictly by geography. There'd be an Eastern League, a Central League, a Western League. They might not call it that, but they're basically going to be divided in that way. And the way the geography of the 30 teams works, it pretty much aligns in such a fashion. You have about 10 teams that are in the Western half of the U.S. You have more than 10 that are in the Central, but you can also take some of the Central teams, move them to the East, you could move Atlanta, which is a Southeast franchise, into the Central. So you can play around with it a little bit. But it works out pretty well. Uh, it also, not only in the short term, is going to help in terms of limiting tra travel. I think it could lead to long-term realignment. You know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of people in baseball, uh, let's start on the East Coast, who would love not to have to go to the West Coast two or three times a year. I speak as a, as a fan of, you know, teams like the Yankees and the Mets. I hate it when those teams go out to the West Coast. The games start at 10, 10, 30. And even though I tend to stay up later than most people, rarely am I up till 1, 1, 32 in the morning where I can see the end of the game. So a lot of fans in the East would really be in favor of something like that. Uh, players would probably be in favor of less travel. So in some ways, this could be an experiment that could become the future of baseball. Now, the problem that you have with three leagues, obviously you can't have three league champions that are going to end up playing each other in a World Series. You're going to have to have a playoff system. You're going to have to decide, all right, how many teams from each league? How is the breakdown going to work? You might have seasons, you probably will have seasons, where you have two teams from one league playing in the World Series probably be a lot of years where you don't have two different leagues represented. And you'll always have a situation where at least one of the three leagues won't be represented in the World Series. In the grand scheme of things, though, I think that's a minor problem. I think if this goes well with this realignment, if they do, uh, do indeed uh, go ahead with it, 
then I think um, it could very well be a test case for future realignment based more on geography and based less on you know traditional league setups, American and National League. Um, you know, I I like that. I mean, I I would like that. I think that uh, you know, I think that I think baseball is not the only sport that could probably use the realignment as far as you know divisions and everything like that goes. But I mean, maybe that's a conversation for another day. Um, so. Could you name another time in baseball that something like this has happened? I, I mean, I, I can't think besides maybe strikes or whatnot that would cause it to be delayed. But, I mean, just a, a time where it's been shaken up this much. Well, let's go back to the um, Spanish flu pandemic of uh, the 1910s. Uh, 1918, the baseball season ended up um, being cut short mostly because of World War I. There was an edict put down by the American government that basically said young men either had to fight in the war or they had to work in a job related to the war industry. And because of that, playing baseball was not gonna be an option in the short term. So that's the principal reason why the 1918 season ended earlier than expected. Uh, but I think a secondary reason probably was the Spanish flu, which was already going through the world at that point. And as it turned out, it was about to get a lot worse during that fall. So it ended up being a good thing that they stopped baseball primarily for the war and secondary reason uh, because of the, the worldwide outbreak of influenza, as it was called back then. Uh, they did end up playing close to a full season. I think they played about 125, 130 games, as opposed to the 154 games, which was the schedule at that time. Then you have World War II during the 1940s, and the commissioner, Judge Landis, was giving serious thought to stopping baseball. Baseball had lost most of its top athletes to military service. There was concern that there was not enough quality, there were not enough quality players to really put out a competitive product. Some of the minor leagues were going out of business because most of their players were recruited into the military. So there was a real concern about the future of baseball to the point where Commissioner Landis sent a letter to President FDR asking him, what do we do? Do we keep the game going or do we suspend operations at least for a while, maybe until the conclusion of the war? This happened in 1942. And ultimately, FDR, well, he actually responded very quickly, and he wrote the famous green light letter back to Landis, where he basically suggested, recommended, that it's important for baseball to keep going for the morale of the country. People are nervous, they're upset, they have friends, relatives, close family that are serving in the war, um, obviously concern about loss of life, concern about injuries. Uh, the morale of the country needed a boost, and FDR thought, you could get that boost if baseball kept going. So he didn't tell Landis, you definitely have to keep the game going. It wasn't an order. It was more of a friendly recommendation. But when the president gives you a recommendation, usually you take it, and Landis did. So baseball, Major League Baseball, went on uninterrupted during the World War II years. Uh, so some people would look at that and say, well, hey, if we could keep going during World War II, maybe we need to keep going now, even though the circumstances are very different today 
Um, we're not talking about war, we're talking about a global pandemic. Um, so th those are the two closest precedents that we've had. So we had one season that was cut short by about 20, 30 games. And then we had no interruption to baseball throughout the 1940s, which in retrospect is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I could, you know, I could see where, you know, I think they could make the argument that uh, sports coming back would be good for the morale of the country now, you know, and I get it. Of course, the, the virus is definitely not a, a war, but, um, you know, I just think that a lot of people just need something, uh, just need something, some semblance of, of normalcy. Um, and Absolutely. I, I think it's a, it's a situation where it would definitely help the morale, the feeling around the country. The concern is doing it in a way that you don't, you know, expose players to unwanted risk. Um, the fact of the matter is, though, that most major league players are in their 20s and 30s. Most of them are in good condition. Most of them are in good health. And as we've seen with this virus, um, major league players being younger and in good health are not in the high risk categories that seem to be especially devastated. So I think as long as we have a, you know, some assurance that you know, those players are not put at um, an unreasonable risk, then I think um, a lot of people, including myself, would be in favor of a season. I agree. I agree completely. Um, all right. So a couple more questions and then I'm going to let Brad take over with uh, some hobby interest questions as well as, a, you know, maybe some talk about faith as well. Uh, all right. So baseball is America's pastime. And I've always wondered, why is that? And also, uh, I guess, how did it become that? Well, if you look at the major professional sports, football, basketball, baseball, hockey, baseball is the oldest. It goes back, we think, to the 1790s. We have found a reference to baseball in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, as far back as the year 1790. So it is an older sport. It's also a sport that's played during the spring and summer when weather is at its nicest, when people like to be outside. It's obviously an outdoor game for the most part. Um, it's also a game that I think appeals to the common man because unlike in football, you know, you don't have to be a huge muscle-bound person. Um, in the NBA, there are obviously some players who are, you know, relatively normal in terms of height, or I don't know if normal is the right word, but uh, I'm six foot four, for example. You've got a lot, you've got a lot of players under six four. You've got some players, point guards, who are under six foot, but it obviously helps the taller that you are, assuming that you have some athleticism that goes along with it. Um, Hockey is, it takes extraordinary skill. You have to be able to uh, skate and handle a stick, handle a puck all at the same time. Very difficult. Baseball, I think, appeals more to the common man. You don't have to have a particular size or a height. Uh, it does take incredible skill, but I think as people look at the game, it, at, at least on the surface, it looks easier to play baseball than it does hockey or football. Football is incredibly violent, uh, puts you through a lot of physical wear and tear. And as I said before, uh, the idea of you know, skating around a rink, avoiding guys who are trying to check you, and also handling a puck and a stick all at the same time is very, very uh, difficult. So I think there's a lot of different factors, but I think baseball does apply or appeal to the common man. It is a sport that um, uh, 
a lot of people are drawn to. Now, there are concerns because the game has become very slow in terms of its pace in the major leagues, even in the minor leagues. And this is a concern that I think baseball does have to address. Um, but in terms of the other aspects of the game, uh, I just think a lot of people look at it and say, you know, this sport, I could do this. Maybe not real well, but I could do it at some semblance. And um, it appeals to me in, in some way. To be out at the ballpark, to be outside when it's, it's hot, it's sunny, it's comfortable, as opposed to sports. Most of the other sports take place during the winter at some point or another. Baseball, obviously, very different. All right. Yeah, no, hey, I, I, you know, I agree with that. I don't know if I've ever really thought about it that way, you know, but it does seem like a sport that most people can do. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem like a sport. Now, granted, if you want to do it at a high level, then, of course, that's where the training and, and the, you know, maybe God-given talent comes in at. But you can still go out and you can do it. Um, so The reality you know, is, though, it's actually very hard. Hitting a baseball is probably the hardest thing to do in all, all of team sports. It just doesn't look that difficult, though, when you see it. I mean, the reality is if I step in against Randy Johnson throwing 98 miles an hour, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to touch the ball. Um, I'm just going to hope that I can get out of there alive. Uh, so it looks easy, but it's really a lot more difficult than its initial appearance. Right, right. So you, you kind of touched on maybe the future of baseball a little bit. What, what is your thoughts on the future of baseball? I mean, do you think that, they, that baseball really needs to change uh, a few things before it can maybe uh, strive uh, going into the future? Well, I do think the pace of the game is a real problem. Uh, I love baseball. I'm a huge diehard. And when it becomes difficult for someone like me who loves the game to sit through a four-hour ball game, watching it on television especially, there's a problem. And there's a lot of unnecessary waiting around. I, I would love to see a clock put in so that pitchers have to deliver a pitch within 20 seconds. And I would love to see the umpires enforce the rule that's already on the books that basically says once a hitter steps into the batter's box, he's got to keep one foot in the batter's box the entire at bat, uh, unless his bat breaks or something gets in his eye, something like that. Unfortunately, they're not enforcing that rule. There is already a rule on the books about the number of seconds between pitches. That is not enforced. So until they put a clock in, until they enforce these existing rules, the pace of play is going to continue to be a problem. Now, I'll still be a fan of the game, but the younger kids who are 15 or even 20, 25, they've become used to faster pace. They want something that's a little bit quicker. Now, the game is never going to be as fast as the NBA or the NHL, uh, but it can be faster than what it is. Uh, and I would argue that it's actually, it makes for better baseball. When you're playing um, whether it's baseball in the sandlot or softball at the nearby park, if your pitcher field and your pitcher is taking a long time between pitches, you start to fidget, you lose concentration. Um, it probably, I think it affects your defensive play. Major league players affects them too. Um, also, the pitcher being out there, the longer that he spends on the mound, the more that he has to try to keep his arm warm, which is very difficult to do over a period of three, three and a half, four hours. So I think from a pitching and fielding perspective, 
pitching at a quicker pace is actually more productive as well as aesthetically pleasing. Uh, so I really do think that's the way to go. It's unfortunate we've gotten into these habits. Um, and gradually over time, we've seen players take more time in between pitches, both hitters and pitchers. There's a certain amount of posing that happens because the games are on television and highlights are shown on various networks. And just gradually over time, the game has gotten very slow. We need to go back to where it was maybe 40, 45, 50 years ago in terms of the pace of play. So I think that's the big thing. And the other thing I'd love to see is I'd like to see more uh, participation uh, from African-American players and more African-American fans at the ballpark. Um, baseball has not done a really good job appealing to the African-American audience. And uh, that's both in terms of getting players, but also getting fans. So that's the, that's the other concern. And I think if baseball can address those two concerns, it should be fine in the long term. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, that sounds. Uh, I didn't your last name, uh, Bruce. And uh, it's been really fun listening about just how you became a Yankees fan amidst a, a Mets, uh, a Mets family, and and just your journey of the Baseball Hall of Fame and. as someone who gives the first to the Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, you have uh, Roberto Clemente. Talking about the Charlie Finley swinging A's, Orlando Cepeda story. And then you have the, the one that just came out in 2019 talking about play ball, uh, the rise of baseball, uh, or the rise of, of baseball as America's pastime um, and how that kind of happened. And so, uh, yeah, I just want to give you some time to talk about some, maybe some of your works, your favorites. Uh, how long it usually takes you to make a book, and then uh, even or Ted Williams' biography, which I, I'll probably at some point because uh, uh, I do like Ted Williams a lot. Uh, but yeah, so if you want to just give us a kind of a heads up on maybe some of your works uh, that you've written, maybe the more. Uh, but yeah. You were breaking up just a little bit, so I, I hope that I heard you um, all right, but I think you were asking about. Uh, the process of, of writing a book. Um, it's, it's actually something I haven't done for a few years. I, I, my first book was way back in 1998. It was a book about the Oakland A's that you mentioned. And then I did the biography of Roberto Clemente almost right after that. Uh, and I did a number of books in the early 2000s. And then I kind of got away from it. I, I really gravitated more toward writing on the internet and, and writing columns and, and writing more frequently, um, but at a shorter length. Um, only now have I think I've kind of started to head back into the area of writing books again. I, I think what people need to realize about writing a book is that you don't do it for the money. If that's your primary motivation, then that means you're probably only going to one write, you're going to write one book, try to make a killing off it financially, and then probably not do it again. Uh, the reality is most authors are not gonna make a lot of money. There are very few people in this country, in the world, that can make a living completely from writing books. Most authors, even some bestsellers, they do something else for a living. They're college professors, they're businessmen or businesswomen. They have some kind of a full-time job to, to fall back on. 
So if you're looking at this as a huge money-making scheme, I think there are probably other areas you want to go into. You have to have a passion for it. It has to be something you want to write. You want to express your thoughts, opinions. You want to do the research. Um, or if you're writing fiction, you, you have that real creative, imaginative part of your personality that you want to tap into. And if you don't have that passion and if you don't have that desire to do the research or to be creative, then writing a book is probably not what you should be doing. It's, it's, it's an investment of time. Um, you could write a book in a year. It's hard to do. Most of the time, I think for most people, it's a multi-year process. It's two, three, four years. I know some authors, they've written, they've been working on books for 10 years, 12 years, 15 years. Uh, so it's really got to be something that you want to do. You have to be driven. It's got to be your goal, your mission. Um, and then if you make a little bit of money, that's fine. But the money has got to be the secondary consideration. Um, it, you have to have that willingness and that passion to want to write about something. And if you have it and you have some writing skill, it can be done. But you also then have to deal with rejection because it's very rare that the first publisher you send a manuscript to or a proposal is going to accept it. So you have to have a little bit of a thick skin. And I think as authors, we all have to develop that because we're all going to receive rejections at one point or another. But you know what? When you, when you finish the book, when it's published, when it's out there, no matter how many copies it sells, just having that final book in your hand, seeing it on uh, seeing it at the, at the shelves, at the bookstores, seeing it online, the satisfaction that comes with it makes, it makes all that effort and struggle worth it. Gotcha. And I know you, in 2019, you came out with uh, Playball, uh, the Rise of America's, uh, or Baseball is America's Pastime. Do you have any works? On well, just to correct you. Or, uh, any, you know, fictional. Mm -hmm. Just to make it clear, um, the, the Playball uh, series, which comes out through the Great Courses, that was actually not my idea. That was a joint okay. effort between the Great Courses people and the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Mm -hmm. um, the Hall of Fame then did auditions. We had several staff members, including myself, try out to be the narrator. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to win the audition. Uh, and to narrate those uh, programs. There were 24 programs, each 30 minutes. And we had to record those, get them done in the span of about three days, which was pretty incredible. It, uh, it took quite a bit of concentrated effort. Um, but I can't take credit for the writing or the idea. It was written by uh, our curators at the Hall of Fame, and it was a joint effort between the Hall and the Great Courses people. I simply did the narration. And I was happy to do it. And it, uh, it's great that it came out there. We've gotten a lot of nice feedback about it. Um, some of the people at the hall now call me the professor because that's what they refer to me as, the professor on the, the play ball series. Um, I'm not really a professor. I'm just the narrator. And, uh, but it was fun. It was, it, was, it, was, it was nice, again, to see the final product. In that case, it didn't take a long time. I had to do it in three days. And it was kind of a marathon but still satisfying when you see the final result. Do you, have, do you have any works you're working on right now as an author? Well, it's funny you ask. I actually just um, received an offer from McFarland, a publisher down in North Carolina, 
And this is going to be uh, something completely different from the baseball books that I've written. This is actually going to be a book uh, about my other area of interest, horror films. And it's the horror films that um, were shown for so many years, late night, Friday and Saturdays. The, the things like Chiller Theater, Shock Theater. Um, you still have some of these late night hosts that exist today, like Sven Gulli on MeTV. But it's, it's basically about the movies that would be shown uh, as part of these late night um, films on Friday and Saturday nights. And um, that's, oh, it's been a desire of mine for a number of years. I kind of kept it secret even from my family. I didn't tell them I was working on it. I just told them when I got the contract offer about five or six weeks ago. Uh, but McFarland did offer me a contract. Not sure exactly when the book's gonna come out. Could be later this year, more likely be next year. But this will be a completely different effort for me. Um, it's uh, having nothing to do with baseball, nothing to do with the Hall of Fame, and having everything to do with my love of horror films. Uh, yeah, you're a, you're a horror film enthusiast. And so that, that's a good transition to the last few questions. I know you have a page called uh, Ghostly Gallows, uh, which, which I liked here recently. Uh, and that's been really cool. Uh, and so how did you get started on that? And, and how did you become a, a horror film enthusiast? Uh, how right, how that how that that row get created for you? Well, I started doing you know I've been on Facebook for a number of years, and a lot of my posts would be about baseball, but more and more I was starting to post about horror films and popular culture and that sort of thing. But then I realized you know a lot of people that are now Facebook friends with me, they found out about me through the Hall of Fame through my baseball connections, and I thought maybe they're not really that interested in the horror. So what I did was I branched off and I created a second Facebook page. Uh, so it's the Ghostly Gallery, and it's been operating now for about a year and four months. I started it in December of 2017, and I've been going ever since. I usually post about two, three times a day about horror films, but also about horror books, literature, comic books that deal with the subject matter. So this way, if if you're a fan of that area of interest, you can sort of concentrate your efforts to the gallery page. And then the people that are friends with me on, on my regular Facebook page know that I'm mostly going to post about baseball, not exclusively, but um, probably 90% of the time. So I have kind of the two, the two different things uh, working at this point. Um, the baseball Facebook page is a lot more popular because I have I think I have over 4,000 friends, which I don't know how that's happened. The Ghostly Gallery page, I have more like 1,600, but we're hoping to build that. Um, if you go on to um, Facebook, just type in at Ghostly Gallery and, uh, just, and become one of our followers. And we'd love for people to join. We're trying to build the audience, hope to get up to at least a few thousand and um, try to develop as much interest there as on my regular Facebook Facebook page. Got you. And so, uh, so out of curiosity, when did you become like films come from? Uh, just the last question before we close out. Uh, what are your top five top five horror films? Great. Um, I love the question. Um, I'll, I'll do them in. Um, Reverse order from five to one. Um, number five is a film that's not that well known, 
came out in 1976, Burnt Offerings. It was done by a guy better known for made-for-TV films, a director and producer named Dan Curtis. Um, but it's an incredibly scary movie. The first time I saw it, I was probably 11 or 12, absolutely frightened me. I watched it again a few years ago, and it still held up. It's still pretty frightening, and it's just so well done. Uh, it's got some big-time actors, uh, uh, Oliver Reed and Betty Davis, Karen Black. Sadly, they've all passed away now. But it's it's just a really well-done film about a not only a haunted house, but an evil house. And it has one of the scariest finishes I've ever seen. So we'll start at Burnt Offerings. Um, number four on my list is uh, a classic from 1968, Rosemary's Baby. Uh, Mia Farrow stars as Rosemary, and she um, is going to have a baby that as it turns out, is tied into a satanic cult, which is based out of the building that she lives in, the Dakota in New York City, famous building. Uh, it's a wonderful film. It's an absolute classic of the genre. Uh, so that's number four. Number three, I'll turn to Alfred Hitchcock, The Birds from 1963. I actually like it a little bit better than his iconic Psycho from 1961. Um, but I just love the birds. Beautiful cinematography, great cast, pretty good special effects for the time, um, likable characters, and it's a really interesting concept. Number two is an absolute classic from Universal Studios, 1931 Frankenstein. I like to call it the, the granddaddy of horror films, if you will. And then uh, my number one selection, much to the chagrin of my wife who can't stand these movies, is the 1991 classic, The Silence of the Lambs, uh, just a, an iconic performance by Anthony Hopkins, uh, Jodie Foster, uh, just a terrific uh, film. I remember the first time I saw it, it was, it was in a restaurant late at night, and they, they illegally had tapped into some cable. They weren't supposed to air it, and I hadn't even heard about it, and I started watching it, and it just, um, it captivated me, and uh, I've, I've loved it ever since. Um, Anthony Hopkins is a great actor. He's had many tremendous roles, but none any better than his performance as Hannibal Lecter. So those are my top five horror films uh, of all time. But if you check back with me in six months, it, it could change. It, it, my list does tend to change from month to month. Gotcha. Yes, yeah, Eyes of Lambs. I remember when I was a kid, I watched that movie uh it scared the bejesus out of me so uh it, it was a pretty scary movie uh yeah. yeah so i i'm glad you're number one because uh, now i know i'm not just a chicken uh that's a legit good scary movie but anyway uh yeah that was pretty fun i enjoyed it i'll have to check out burnt offerings I, I actually haven't heard of that one yet and so i'll have to check it out for sure i'm gonna let robert take over and close it out though so it was, it was great talking to you miss markson well call me bruce uh no need to be for, formal, guys. Um, uh, thank you, Brad. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate uh, being on and um, be happy to return anytime. If you're, if you're looking to fill some time, um, I'm happy to do it. Uh, as I said, very familiar with Zoom. This is not new to me, thankfully. Hey, Bruce. Yeah, you know, Silence of the Lambs is actually, uh, it's actually one of my favorites as well. I'm a big Halloween guy, mm. believe it or not. I mean, maybe it's because I'm younger, uh, but I've always been a big fan of that. It's probably my favorite, uh, one of my favorite series types of uh of scary movies um i don't know where it ranks for you but uh uh you know yeah it's always been one of my favorites um but yeah silence of the lambs definitely uh definitely one of the top top films for me um 
so we appreciate you coming on and listen i've learned i've learned a lot honestly i have within this last uh, 45 minutes or so uh, talking about baseball but also horror films um that's something different you know we haven't got into horror we haven't really got into movies at all at any of our interviews or anything like that uh we always love to to branch out and uh of course sports is our main focus but hey you know listen anytime that we can attract any other offense or any other offense any other uh any other topic then we are uh we're happy about it so uh yeah listen i learned a ton and um and yeah we appreciate you coming on bruce yeah, we'll, we'll try to get you on again, especially if the, maybe the season starts. We'll get you on, and uh, we can talk a little bit of base, uh, about maybe predictions for the season or something like that. Well, I hope it happens. My, my gut feeling is July. Well, early July, 4th of July, that first week in July. Uh, we don't get started by then. Probably means we won't have a season, but I'm, I'm going to remain optimistic. I, I, I agree, yeah. We have to – I think at this time, positivity is definitely the best uh, – the best way to go uh, about anything. But uh, Bruce, like I said, we appreciate you coming on and, uh, and thank you again. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Nice talking to you. Take care. All right, folks. That's going to do it for another edition of the Golden Point Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Foster. With me, as always, is Brad Winter. Go check us out on Facebook at Golden Point Sports for more content, as well as uh, where you can find all the podcasts. Anything you need to know about Golden Point Sports, contact us. Anything is where you find us. So check it out.